Good morning. It's good to be with you guys on this maybe uh, potentially fall morning, right? If this stays like this, whew, it's going to be a good September. Um, it's good to be out here. Uh, we're walking through the book of Exodus. Todd started our new sermon series last week that will take us all through the fall. Uh, last week, Todd set the stage for us, showing us God's hand of providence in the story of Israel and their captivity by the Egyptians. This morning, we're going to look at a, a famous story of Moses' birth, his mother sending him down the Nile in a basket, and his salvation at the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. So this morning, we're going to talk about salvation being found in the Lord. So my wife and I got married uh, like nine months after we graduated college. And what that means is that we were way too young, but also um, a lot of our friends uh, were still in college or very young, right? And we got married in March, and so that means that I had my bachelor party in February, and this was a Christian bachelor party, right? So nothing too, too crazy. All we did was we went to a lake house, did some boating during the day, even though it was February, so it was too cold, nothing too crazy. But one thing that Christians do, especially young, immature ones, since we got married young, a lot of young, immature people there, was a lot of hazing. I don't know why we did that. I participated in it too, with my brothers especially, and with others. I was ruthless, and let me just say, I had it coming for me. My own bachelor party, I was hazed pretty ruthlessly. Um, most of it I won't speak to. I can't. Um, but there was this one incident that happened. So it was the night, uh, maybe the second night of my bachelor party, and my buddies say, hey, let's go on a night cruise. And I said, ah. And they said, you're coming on a night cruise. And I said, okay. How was I going to fight 10 guys? So we go out on the boat. It's like midnight. No life jackets. Again, we were young and immature. Get out in the middle of the lake, and they say, get on the tube. And I said, no. And they said, get on the tube. I said, okay. So I get on the tube, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to be okay. No biggie. I was like, maybe I'll get thrown into the water. Not a huge deal, whatever. They are ruthless with me, back and forth and back and forth, and whipping me around, stopping the boat, and then hitting the gas, like the jerk, you know, kind of, like really jerks the, the, the line. Of course, I finally fall off. And the water is so cold, like, like 50 degrees cold, right? I'm sitting there shivering. They turn around. They come to pick me up. They're coming straight towards me. And I'm like, all right, good. I'm about to get out of here. Towel on. I'll be great. But they don't come towards me. They come up next to me. And they take honey, chocolate syrup, syrup itself, and they just all pound me with it, right? And then they just drive off leaving me stranded in the middle of the water, frigid, covered in sticky things, which I hated, but also wouldn't come off in the water, right, because it's freezing. And I'm out in the middle of the lake, and here's what I thought. I was like, I should have known better, right? I was like, I should have known that I, they were going to haze me. I knew that I, my, I was going to have to take account for my past shenanigans at, at their bachelor parties, and yet here I was. I went along with it, and these guys got me. I was thinking this week that this is such a great example of our hearts and our lives because of sin. Because of our rebellion against Christ, it's like we have stranded ourselves in the middle of a freezing lake with no hope of salvation at all. But it's not always just our sin either, right? It's the brokenness of the world, the, the effects of sin and the fall that have touched every part of creation also affects us as well, right? It makes us feel alienated, alone, without hope. 
The sin uh, that makes all that God declared good at even is, makes it all now tainted and broken. We're alone, not only on that lake, but often in the world with no way out. But the truth of the gospel is that salvation is possible, right? And, and not just possible, it, it's available. The trajectory of scripture has always been that God has made man and his image in the world to be good. Sin coming in and breaking all of that image bearing and that goodness in the created order, resulting in death and destruction, only for Christ to come to bring salvation to a dying world. This is the trajectory of scripture. But in Christ's death, the world finds life. We're not stranded in the middle of that lake because Christ has pulled us out, saved us from certain death, and given us life. Salvation is found there. And this is exactly what this story is pointing to in Moses and the Nile. God's people had been enslaved for hundreds of years. They'd been taken captive by stronger Egyptians. And God continued, even in that slavery, to bless them. Their numbers grew, and they grew so much so that Pharaoh said, I've got to stop this. They're getting too strong. He was intimidated by their flourishing. So he brought death to them in that edict of killing all their firstborn sons. And and in that edict of death, what we're going to see today, God brought salvation. Seeds of salvation for God's people, both as individuals and, and corporately, are found throughout this entire story. And we're going to look at it in a second. But what we see that's so important is that Moses found salvation in the Lord. And because God saved him, he used him as a vehicle to save all of God's people. And the same is true of us. Salvation is found in the Lord. And we know this and we preach this. and It's, the heart, it's why we're here this morning. But I feel like in my heart, and I wonder if yours, if we actually live that way. If we actually live as a reminder every day that our lives are not our own, they were bought with a price. That salvation is found not in ourselves, not in our political leanings, not in our friends, not in our spouses, our families, but in Christ Jesus. We're looking for salvation everywhere and we're coming up short. Nothing's gonna pull us out of that lake except for Jesus Christ. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning so this, this morning as we talk about finding salvation in the Lord, we're going to look at two things and, and kind of two revelations. It's this. First, Christ's salvation, it promises that we will find life in death. We will find life in death. But also, Christ's salvation promises us that throughout life, we'll experience death. So first, we will find uh, death, uh, life in death and death in life. And we'll go back and forth between the two. So first, his salvation promises that we'll find life and death. So this is a familiar story to us, right? We've heard it. We know it. Um, in fact, this archetype was actually pretty, uh, it was pretty pervasive in the ancient Near East of a leader, uh, a baby getting abandoned and adopted by his enemies and then growing up one day to be the vehicle of salvation for his people. This actually happened to a bunch. But if you take a, a step back and look at this story with fresh eyes, it's really dark. The story's really messed up. The shadow of death hangs over this entire story. So think about this. In in verse 1 and 2, it says this. A man from the house of Levi went and took uh, a Levi woman as his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So as Todd told us last week, and as we mentioned, Pharaoh had ordered the death of all male babies. So when this couple has this son, 
there's a cloud of death that hangs over him. Actually, the baby itself, Moses was born with a death sentence. And verses three and four said, when she could hide him no longer, she took him for a basket and made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child on it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And the sister stood a distance to know what would be done to him. So a three-month-old's not quiet, right? They're, they're loud, they're screaming, they're crying at all times, they're starting to roll around. So she, she could keep him quiet, maybe those first couple months when they're sleeping a lot, but by month three, man, there's no hiding this baby. She knew that she was gonna get found out. And she didn't want the baby to die, so she did everything she could do to comply with the law, even maliciously, right? She was like, well, Pharaoh said we have to throw all the babies in the Nile. Well, I'm gonna do that, but I'm gonna try to ensure this baby's salvation in any way that I can make him a basket, make sure it's solid, it won't sink, and I'm gonna push him out. Verses five and six say this. The daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside her. And she saw the basket on the reeds and sent her servant woman took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. Already, Moses' mother had pushed this baby down the Nile knowing it was almost a certain death sentence crocodiles, exposure, whatever, that three-month-old's not gonna last very long. But then, not just that, something unexpected, unexpected, maybe even chilling happens. The Pharaoh's own daughter, the enemy himself's own daughter, sees the baby. You know, I try to put myself in that mother's shoes and you think, maybe the unknown would've been better send the baby down the, down the Nile, hope that it survives, you never really know. But you see it get in the enemy's own hands. That's chilling. Death hung over the princess, perhaps more than even the uncertainty of the Nile. What would she do? But verse six says she took pity on him. This is one of the Hebrews' children, and she decided right then to keep him and raise him. She took pity on him, defying her father's orders, deciding to save him. Salvation often comes from the least expected of places. And what we see here, as we know, which is indicative of the gospel itself, is that in death we find life. What was a literal death sentence from Pharaoh turned into an almost certain death sentence when he was pushed into the Nile, which ultimately was 100% a death sentence when it gets into the Pharaoh's daughter's hands resulted in salvation. It's in death that Christ promises life. But we're gonna dig just a little bit deeper and hang with me with this because there's actually seeds of life throughout this whole story that we can miss if we don't look for it. So first, in the Nile River, the Nile River was the source of life for all the Egyptians. So when we saw her push the baby down the Nile, it should have struck something in our minds. Maybe there's hope for this baby. The Nile River brought sustenance. Their agriculture innovation by the Egyptians was used, uh, was almost like a millennia before their time. They scheduled their entire life around the cycles and tides of that water. So it's incredibly sad that Pharaoh decided to turn a source of life into a graveyard, and yet out of that graveyard, salvation was found. We also see in Moses' mother, right off the bat, we've seen that uh, this child was set apart. So uh, when, when Moses' mom looks at him and says that she is a fine child, that word fine is the same exact word in the Hebrew that God spoke over all of creation. 
So when God created all things and he said that it was good, when Moses' mother saw Moses, she said, he is good. He is a good child. So when God birthed all of creation, is the same word that Moses' mother used for him. We should have known right then and there that that child was destined for something else. Finally, we see it in the basket that his mother put it in. The basket here in Hebrew is elsewhere translated as ark. So that's right. The same word that's used for Noah by God to build and preserve all of life and all of creation as his purifying waters cleanse the earth of sin was used to describe the vehicle of salvation for Moses himself. Just as that ark saved Noah and God's people, we should have known Moses going in an ark that he would be saved. It's in death that Moses found out. And this is the heart of the gospel. In the same way Jesus was handed over to his enemies, people that wanted him dead, in the same way Jesus' life had the haunting shadow of death over every second of his ministry, in the same way Jesus was given a death sentence that was inescapable by his very own people, in the same way Jesus was innocent of any wrongdoing, any action that could have implicated him, he was innocent as a baby. And yet in his death we have life. The death sentence that was over Moses spelled salvation for Israel because God ordained his steps. He provided salvation even in the most unlikely of places just as Christ Jesus did for us. So what does this mean for us? I think a few things. I think probably the most important though is that the call of the gospel is to die to ourselves. And when we die to ourselves, we find life in Christ. I think maybe the most important way that we're called to die to self is to put to death the sin in our hearts and lives. And I'm not talking about uh, the death to our sinful identity uh, that leads to eternal separation from the Lord. That's covered through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about a continual and daily death of our sin through our actions and lives. It's a commitment to putting the sin in our hearts to death. The classic kind of uh, old school term for this is, is mortification. We don't talk about this often. But it's, it is that practice of seeing our sin and choosing to put it to death. This takes sin very seriously. It changes our posture from sin, which is often complacency, apathy, at times acceptance or defeat, as if we can't get away from it. It calls us to look at our sinful hearts and nature and go to war with it. We're called to kill that sinful peace of our hearts through the grace and the Holy, the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit every day. We're supposed to look at our sin and say, Christ died for it on the cross, therefore we can put it to death in our own lives. But not only that, we're called to die to self, to find life in Christ by dying for the sake of one another. We are called to die to self for the sake of one another. There's many different ways that we can talk about this, of dying to self for the sake of one another. But here's how I want to do it this week. I want to do it when we talk about politics. Great, huh? Let's get everyone a little rustled up, a little riled up. I think in a lot of ways, politics has become the religion of America, specifically in 2020. The majority of people, Christian or non, align themselves with their political ideology, 
affiliation or party first. It's their primary identity. That's how they look at themselves. It's become the religion of America. What happens is that people hold their political affiliation so close to the vest that they begin to look at other people as other, villainizing them, ostracizing them, less than. We demean people that think differently than us or that are of a different religion than us, right? We put them down. We reject them. Very similar to how different religions have done throughout history. This is how the world is operating in our cultural moment right now. It's been building to this place for years and in an election year. We're all experiencing it. We're all here. There's no point not to name it. We're all there. What's been hard for me to see is that Christians have begun to put their political leanings and affiliations as their primary place of identity rather than in Christ Jesus. And yes, our nation is polarized extremely, but our calling as Christians is to enter that polemic area and bring peace. Church, our calling is to die to ourselves for the sake of one another. That means we may even have to die to our political affiliations or what we consider the right way to view things for the sake of one another, for the sake of people that vote differently than us. Our calling as a church is to be willing to die to self so much that we create space for differing opinions, patience, and grace for one another, and healthy discussions. If we contribute to the vitriol and divisiveness that we see, we're doing the opposite of the gospel call to die to self as Christ died for us, which is to lay down our lives for one another as he did for us. Even if we have to lay down our life for brothers and sisters who think differently than us, who have in our opinion, problematic views or views that we think are harmful or wrong. That is dying to self in 2020 as Christians. What would it look like for this year, this election cycle, if the church chose to die to self as its primary vocation? How would that change the way that we move towards one another? How would that change the way we move towards the world? To be a people who loved well, who were gracious with one another, who were patient with one another, who listened who served while a nation around them fought, slandered, and demeaned one another. What would that look like for us? Here's what happens when we die to self. We find life. If we choose to die to self for the sake of one another, we create life, not just for ourselves, but for them too. We give life to one another by giving up our selfish desires, motives, and beliefs. And this doesn't mean being inauthentic or losing who you are or being wishy-washy in what you believe. This doesn't mean uh, allowing yourself to be hurt physically, emotionally, or spiritually. No, but it is living a life of sacrifice. It's good that some of you have strong political, ideological, or socioeconomic beliefs. It's not a bad thing. I love the diversity of ideology here at Hope Chapel. It's what makes us strong. Sometimes it keeps us in tension, but in that tension, growth and flourishing happens. But the question is, do we use our beliefs as a bludgeon or do we use it as service to one another? Because when we use our beliefs as a bludgeon, it's self-serving, but if we use it as serving one another, it's sacrificial. One brings death, One brings life. Church, our call is to die for the sake of one another as Christ did for us. Let us live that way. Yes, for the remainder of this year, the election cycle, but for years to come. It brings us to our final point. 
Salvation is found in the Lord, and it promises life even in death. But now we're going to see that salvation also promises us thus the inverse. In life, we will experience death. So life in Christ means we will experience death. We're, we're going to see this in a few different ways. Verse 7 says this. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the wa- child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because I drew him out of the water. So we see here kind of some resolution. The fears of Moses' sister and mom were relieved. What they thought would be certain deaths spelled life. And Pharaoh's daughter decided to, to, to save him, bring her into his household. He'd be cared for, provided for would grow up healthy. But we see the resourcefulness of Moses' mother and sister jumps, jumping at the opportunity to, to bring a, um, an, a Hebrew woman, unbeknownst to the princess uh, as uh, his mother, to be a wet nurse. So she didn't only get to nurse her own son, she also got paid to do it too, which is awesome. But the irony here is palpable, and the Lord's hand is prevalent everywhere. There's so many advantages to what happened for Moses. He would grow up a prince, wealthy, with status and power. He'd be educated by the most powerful and smartest people in the entire world. He'd be uniquely situated one day to take leadership over his people and lead them out of slavery. Another ironic twist to this story. Pharaoh's own daughter saved the baby who would one day steal away his entire population of slaves. It's amazing. But I do want to come at it from a different angle. It's not all great. Moses' mom got to nurse and raise her baby, who she saw as good, right? But who knew that her time with him would be cut short. I bet she died a little bit every day as he grew up, like most mothers do, of course. But knowing she would have to one day let him go to enemy territory, serving and growing up in his enslaver's own house, I think about the day when she officially was done nursing him. She had to give him to the princess. I bet it felt like death all over again, almost like pushing him down the Nile again. I think about the loss of not raising her son, knowing Yahweh and the religious practices of his people. I think about the loss of his sister who didn't get to grow up with her brother. The death that they experienced here turned out to not be a literal one, right? But an emotional and spiritual one. But there's a reason, as Christians, that we should expect suffering and death in life. There's a reason that Paul tells us to rejoice in our sufferings in his letter to the church in Rome. There's a reason that Peter tells us that we will suffer for a little while until Christ restores us through his grace. There's a reason that we are told that we can find comfort in Christ, even in the greatest afflictions. There's a reason that Psalms tells us that our afflictions are many in the life of God's people, but that God will deliver us. There's a reason that Paul tells us that we will experience tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, and yet none of it will separate us from the love of Christ. And there's a reason there's a vast Hebraic tradition of long-suffering for the sake of the Lord. And the reason is this. We should expect suffering as Christ's people. We should expect death, literally and metaphorically, and yet we have a God who promises salvation, love, and grace in the midst of all that. Many of you are here this morning and you've experienced death this year. You've experienced death uh, 
in relationships, your marriage is falling apart or is falling apart or, or you're feeling the death of who you married. Maybe they turn out who you thought they'd be. Some of you are here this morning, you're experiencing death and future dreams or goals that you had hoped for and dreamed of and had the rug pulled out from under you. Some of you are here this morning and experienced the death of financial difficulty or even ruin that you never expected. Some of you are here this morning, you've experienced death and your hopes for the school year. You never expected it to be this way, either as a student or a teacher. Experiencing death is not the way it was meant to be, even in this metaphorical way. We were made for eternity. Death entered the world as a result of sin, not out of God's good creation. It's wrong. It shouldn't be an experience for us. We should mourn the almost 200,000 people who have died from COVID because death is not the way it was ever meant to be. We can mourn death literally or emotionally and spiritually because it's not the way it was supposed to be. But as Christians, we have something that the world does not have and it's salvation in Christ Jesus. We know that suffering is not the end of our story because death was never the way it was meant to be. We have hope that Christ will return and restore all that is good and to bring his grace and restoration to all of creation and bringing us back to him. That in trajectory of scripture that we talked about earlier is Christ returning to dwell with his people and us with him. So in our suffering, in our experience of death, we know that life is waiting for us once again and that our suffering is not without purpose. So this morning, wherever you're experiencing death, here's my encouragement. The love of Christ is available for you this morning. The grace of Christ is fresh for you this morning. Salvation can be yours anew this morning. In your long suffering and the death you experience regularly, Christ is present. He's with you. We will experience death. We should expect it. But even as much, we should expect experiencing the goodness and grace of Jesus in the midst of it. That is our hope. So uh, I realize that my story about my bachelor party is sad um, and also kind of funny. When they finally turned around and came and picked me up out of the water, I was cold and miserable and alone. And my vehicle of salvation was the last people I kind of wanted to see at that time, right? I was so mad, I may or may not have, and sad, that I cried in the shower afterwards. Um, A part of me died a little bit that day. Um, But those same guys that threw me in those frigid waters also stood next to me a month later when we got married. And those same guys were my sounding board and rock during my years in seminary halfway across the country. Those same guys, yesterday we pushed off on tubes in Maggie Valley and tubed down a river together for hours on our yearly guys trip. Those guys have been a vehicle of salvation for me in a million different ways over the years, and I'm thankful for them. But they hurt me, and they have hurt me, and they will again. They failed me, and they will again, because salvation, true salvation, is not found in them. It's found in the Lord. And the salvation we find in him is never ending. It's unstoppable. It's eternal, and it's unshakable. It brings life in the midst of death, and when we experience death, we are reminded of life. That's found in him. He will never fail us. He is our hope and our rock and our salvation. And in him, we both give glory and we find rest. That is our hope this morning. Amen.